0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Amen, Rachel, and God bless you. And uh, you'll want to say hi to her after the service when she's out in the foyer with her family. It's great that her grandma could be here from Victoria, and uh, praise the Lord for that. And uh, it felt, thank you, first of all, for the appreciation that you give and uh, not just in October, but all year long, and we are blessed to be able to be part of a pastoral team here at this church. We are, we're very much, uh, we know we're lifted up in prayer, we're encouraged, and um, it really felt odd to be up here without Kathy, though. Kathy's the quarterback of our team, and uh, let's give her a hand. <clears throat> she makes all of us look good, so that's good. Well, I want to um, say to you right now that uh, as we get ready to look at uh, creation again in Genesis, um, that this is our fourth week looking at Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account. And um, we're going to be moving on after this day to look at what I think is the next biggest theme in, in the first few chapters of Genesis, and that is humanity which is created in the image of God. So the image of God is a huge, huge, important foundation block for our faith. And uh, whereas we've taken four weeks to look at creation, and some of you will say, "That's not nearly enough." and some of you will say, "Oh, thank you, Lord. We're moving on." So uh, <laughs> we' kind of aiming at the middle here for all of you, but you know, there's 50 chapters in Genesis, and we want to finish by next August, so that next September we can start a new series. Uh, and so we are moving along fairly quickly. So uh, today is my last opportunity to really address some of the things, and it's a very odd, a very odd um, outline, as I will show you in a minute. Um, and so we're going to take six weeks to look at the image of God doctrine in the Scriptures and why that is so foundational to so much of what we believe as Christians. And uh, it'll take us right up to Advent and Christmas, now, I've been having a discussion with the Lord in the last 20 minutes, or 15 minutes, I say I should say, maybe, uh, in my chair. And I think He always wins those, uh, you know, kind of conversations. And something happened to me this morning that I, I have to share with you. And I don't know what God is doing in you this morning, but, but um, as we have focused our sights this year on growing in our humility before God and one another... Uh, it seems like it's one of those moments for me again <clears throat> So I was in I was in the washroom. I won't go into details here, but I was in the washroom <laughs> <laughs> not too long ago before the service and uh, Sammy Cooper uh, said hey nice sweater And uh, I said, oh, yeah, I didn't think I'd be wearing it so early or whatever. I forget. I, what I said, but uh, um, and I thought nothing of it and then I got up out here and Sammy gets up and he's leading in worship and he's wearing the same sweater, and I realized just how incredibly self-absorbed I was that I just, I didn't even think of your sweater, Sammy, which is a great sweater. (laughs) I just thought, oh, it's all about me, and uh, I don't know, but that's a humbling thing for me. When Sammy got up and I saw him, I thought, oh, you jerk, Terry, you're just thinking about yourself, you know, so I could hide behind the fact that I've got this sermon on my mind and I'm just so spiritually minded and so on, but really it's just that I was very self-absorbed this morning. And uh, I don't. Know, that's a humbling thing, isn't it? God, God has ways of humbling us in different ways. And I think, again, I will say to you, Genesis is a humbling study as we look at origins and as we look at how God brought about what he's brought about. And so uh, let's begin. And I'd like us to... Um, begin by a scripture reading in Genesis 1 that I'm not going to ask you to stand for today, but again, I'm going to draw from the drawings the, of Nicole Manuel, and she is in our church family, and I want you to know, is she here? She's probably with the children again. She's in children's ministry, and um, she did not do these drawings by, on commission somehow, like when you see them. Uh, she did not sort of get commissioned to do that she was in a women's bible study precept bible study on genesis a few years ago and and she was sitting right beside my wife and pat would come home and she'd say here's my scribblings on genesis one day one whatever and then she'd show me later on she showed me what nicole was was drawing and so she nicole gave me permission to share these with you so i'd like to just go through genesis six days of creation and show you from the word of god from A pictorial rendition the earth was without form and void says the Bible and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said let there be light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day and the darkness he called night And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. And let the dry land appear. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, each according to its kind on the earth. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the fields according to their kinds. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And on the seventh day, God rested. May God bless his word to us today. Amen. This morning, as you'll see in the insert in your bulletin, there is a rather odd sermon outline that you will see. And it's because it's our last opportunity right now to address some of this. I want to share with you uh, some of the reasons why um, I'm leaning toward a certain interpretation and some of the things that I would caution about. I do this in response to some of the questions that I've been given on the phone or in person or on email. And I'm just going to respond to some of that, as well as, uh, as look at the Scriptures with you. So let's begin, and let's start by addressing the first, the first point. And, uh, and we're going to go to the first point. <laughs> and we're, we work on this, believe me, I practiced before the service. So I'm going to have IBK help me out. Let's review our study in Genesis 1, and let's go to the first point under that, and that is that we are going to look at the clarification of the two books, Nature and Scripture. Now, I think that there's probably no areas of Scripture that can lead to more speculation than the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, and I have been a pastor for over 30 years, and I have studied theology and read many books and so on. And in those two areas, the beginnings and the endings, the Genesis and the revelation, it seems like in those places there is a tendency to, uh, to uh, go beyond that which is written. And uh, for example, as I was studying, I didn't mention it yet, but there is what is called the gap theory. And some of you who are older will remember the Schofield Bible reference b- book, the Schofield Bible, a reference Bible and it actually goes into describing in some of the notes of Schofield Bible this idea of a gap theory. And there's various gap theories, but basically it's trying to account for what happened between Genesis 1:1 and Genesis 1:2. And in that regard, it sort of has this idea that there was a pre-creation before the first day of creation. And it goes into this idea of a perfect heaven and earth being populated by a pre-Adam race... Satan, the angel of God that we read about in the Old Testament, um, the Satan, the angel of God, uh, was rebelling against God, and so God judged Satan and all the earth that was, he was ruling over, and he sensed a flood. And then there came this global ice age, and it has this way of trying to explain the the age of the earth, the fossils on the earth today, billions of years old, along with the biblical record. And so what is it doing? It's trying to bring these two books together, the book of nature and the book of Scripture, but I believe it's going way beyond what is actually written, and it's going into speculative uh, thinking, and of course, imposing a truckload of speculation on the text is not the way we want to interpret neither science nor scripture so now i want to clarify about these two books that i speak of and it's not my original idea but god is the author of both all science all knowledge under scientific experimentation and theory and under all of scripture and theology and knowledge of god but there's a reason why theologians in church history have called creation or or science the the book of science, general revelation, and they've called Scripture special revelation. Why is that? It's because by looking at creation and science and all the things that have been created, we can only understand a little bit about God and about His purposes for us. We understand by looking at the universe around us that God is creative, that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign, that God is loving, that God loves relationship. But we don't understand Jesus, we don't understand the whole plan of redemption unless we pick up special revelation and read the God book that's found in the Bible. So although I say and argue very vehemently that there's one author and that these two books agree... Though your understanding of them may not, you must need to apply a wise hermeneutic, the science of interpretation, to both the data that you get from science and the data that you get from studying the Bible, and you will bring them together, and one day we'll understand that there's no disharmony between the two. But having said that, I must also state that if you have to, if you have to decide between the two, if there's one that's going to give us more detail of what God's purposes are for our lives, you understand that special revelation takes precedent over general revelation. Again, they don't disagree. They don't disagree, though your understanding of them both, the the things might. And so I believe that we must be very patient to not make speculative interpretations of scientific discovery, nor of what we think Scriptures are saying, if the Scriptures are not really clear on what they are saying. And so we interpret both books with integrity. That's the first thing I want to clarify under the review of our study so far. The second thing I would like to clarify, and we talk about Please just follow along with me at the back there because this little clicker is not working. And even though we practice this. And so that's this book of Scripture and book of nature. Secondly, I want to mention BioLogos, the the webpage that I referred to last week. I regret that I referenced it as though somehow I endorse everything written on it. (laughs) <laughs> and that's one of the dangers of quoting anybody in the pulpit is that somebody's going to think, oh yeah, Cenk believes this because he quoted that. Well, the fact is that there are some things on that web page that I really, really appreciate. Um, I think Francis Collins, who... Or, who's the uh, founder of BioLogos, is a brilliant man, a Christian man. I believe he helps to answer some of the questions. The one article I read a few weeks ago was very good, but when I went back in as a result of somebody writing me this week and looked at some of it, I don't agree at all. I, I, I issue a caution, in fact, over some of the things that are on that webpage, and especially as it concerns theistic evolution, Again, macroevolution, the idea that somehow that species can be evolved into other species. That's macroevolution as opposed to microevolution. And I believe that that's a really dangerous thing to follow. First of all, I believe that even, even evolutionary theory knows that they cannot account for the origin of life. They can only account for changing life. But they do not account for the origin of life. The only plausible reason for the origin of living things is God. That's the only plausible thing that's been put forth. Science has not given a plausible argument. They talk about a big bang, perhaps, but who caused the big bang? We believe in a designer God who has who's brought things into being But even as you follow the the theory of evolution, and by the way, I didn't say this a few weeks ago, but when I was looking at The Origin of Species by Darwin, Charles Darwin, and and sometime, why don't you look up that book again and read the entire title, because you will understand several people who have hitched their wagon to evolutionary theory will, will automatically, when they open that book, be repulsed by some of the teaching of Charles Darwin. The idea of natural selection means that greater human races can annihilate other human races, that white supremacy is completely fine. There's all kinds of stuff in there that the average person, I think, that hooks their wagon to evolutionary theory has no clue that they really philosophically are completely in disagreement with that. We need to be careful and even as we study neo-darwinism which is a, a newer brand there are so many things that cannot be embraced and so i give a caution even to the 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 biologos webpage because there's there's things in there in talking about theistic evolution that i would say i can't agree with one of them i'll give an example and that is simply the idea that in evolution god brought about a species development that eventually, when it came time and Homo sapiens came into view, God then said, I endow you. I put on you my image. So that pre-Adam, there was this evolving into what was called Adam and Eve then, and God then said, okay, now you're in my image. I can't accept that. The biblical account can't accept that. The word in Hebrew for create cannot accept that this this creation of god and so there are things in there that christian people are wrestling with and i would say to you be cautious in how you handle some of these ideas let's move on to talk about the three days or the three views on the days of creation and uh i would i shared last week with you there are several opinions on this, and and it boils down to three basic views. Number one, the 24-hour view, that basically there was six 24-hour days of creation, and then the seventh day. These people that um, follow this view uh, believe in a young earth, uh, extrapolating from Scripture that we can understand the age of the earth. And then there's the day-age view, which is basically saying that the, the days in the Scriptures of Genesis 1 do not stand for 24-hour days but chronological uh, chronologically understanding a progression with periods of time represented by each day epochs, and then the fi- final one which kind of is a catch all for lots of others is the framework view which is a, a kind of a view that emphasizes more the logical rather than the chronological approach to understanding creation The idea that that functionality is more important than actual days and materiality in the creation account. And uh, we will, I'm going to refer to this more as we move along, but I just wanted to refresh your memory and and tell you that uh, I'll reference in in a couple minutes some of those views under framework view. And then I mentioned key key phrases that are involved in understanding Genesis chapter 1, the six days of creation. And that is this Hebrew rhyming words, tohu abohu. And those two words rhyme in Hebrew, but they're, they're the words without form and void. And the Lord God in his holy scripture gave us in verse 2 the key that unlocks the six days of creation. Because we saw last week a parallel between verses the, the sorry the uh the first three days and then the second three days in verses in days one to three we see tohu we see this forming god formed light and then in verse four we see the filling of that form of light with the lights of the sun the moon and the stars in day two we see god create the seas and the sky And in day five, we see the sky and the seas filled with creatures that live. In day three, we see the forming of land that comes up out of the sea that is on the earth. And we see the filling of that with animals and eventually humans at the end of that day six. And so Tohu Wabohu, I believe, is is a key that the author has given us to help us remember. And again, he's written to ancient Israel to to help them understand the way that origin took place. Now, I think it's a crude example, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. I believe that it helps us to to think about Fort White Alive, right next to us on this land. Fort White Alive is a beautiful bird and wildlife sanctuary that resides right beside us. And I can only imagine what the area looked like several years ago when Lafarge Cement was done dredging and mining clay for the making of cement And and the land probably would have been well described by without form and void. It was a mess. After the cement company had had taken everything they wanted, was getting ready to repurpose itself, and and gifted land and developed into this nature center, I think the words without form and void would probably have been an apt description of the land. Even the land that this building that we're sitting on right now without form and void. When we excavated the land on our building right here, we found many reminders of history of the land predating Lafarge. And every so often, Chris Karam would come come to the other office at 201 and tell me a story of something that they found, like like old railway ties and tracks or cribbings of cement that were deep and and wide and so on. But in, in the same way, a plan was made at Fort White Alive, that they were going to develop that into uh, a place that was a sanctuary for birds and wildlife that could sustain life. And five lakes were further defined, those places that were dredged and mined for the clay to make cement. And marshlands were identified and a visitor center and other outbuildings were constructed. And so there became this forming, this forming of Fort White, what we see now, of a wildlife sanctuary, and then finally, when it was ready, what did they do? They filled it. They filled it with wildlife. The first wildlife that they actually populated there were three pairs of Canada geese. Well, that went successful. <laughs> <laughs> Good program. <laughs> three pair of Canada geese. Next a little while later 50 pairs of mallard ducks then much later trumpeter swans and on it goes they were they were filling this sanctuary that they had built to sustain those kind of wildlife and creatures and now there's over 400 acres of diverse habitat including forest lakes wetlands and so on to be a sustainable environment for wildlife I believe that's a picture a crude example Of what God did in six days of creation, for the first three days He was forming something that we're told in verse two was tohu wabohu. It was without form and void, and and then God formed it into something that that looked so incredibly amazing and orderly and no chaos anymore. And then when He formed that that sanctuary, He filled it. He filled it with with birds and fish and wildlife. And the, and the crowning, the crowning glory. Of his creation is humans in the image of god the likeness of god to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and to have dominion we're going to be talking about what that means and so let's move on to a more vulnerable point and that is to reveal some of my own personal beliefs and questions i had a systematic theology professor and some of you might know him phil taylor who would never tell you what he believed it drove us nuts. He would say, this person has a great treatment on this, and this person, I like what he says about that. And I'd say, once in a while, I'd take him upside private, and I'd what do you believe? <laughs> and then he'd go on, well, I think I like what this guy says. but I don't know. Well, there's no way for me to preach through Genesis in this way without somehow showing you a little bit of what I believe. And I want to say this with all humility and respect, because I've got more questions now than I did when I started studying back at the early in the summer, I got more questions now. Um, and, and maybe that's what is happening to you as we study Genesis. That's okay. So of all the books that I've read in the last several months, there are two books that I really appreciate. I should have put them on a, on a page here. But um, the one book is by John C. Lennox called Seven Days That Divide the World. And then the second book is by John H. Walton called The Lost World of Genesis 1, and I also have his commentary on Genesis. Now, what do both of them bring to this? Both of them would fall under the framework view, the third option of the, of the views of days of creation. What I learned from John Lennox is, to, is that I don't need... What I learned from John Lennox was that I can handle the Scriptures with integrity, and I don't have to be a young earth person, okay? Okay? Now, I want to say that I don't believe personally, and I'm fine to be convinced otherwise, but I don't believe personally that, that the book of Genesis or any book of the Bible is given to us to somehow determine the age of the earth or the universe. I don't believe that was on their thinking i don't believe the holy spirit meant to inspire human authors to give us the age of the earth i believe that's that's imposing 21st century agenda and science and thinking upon an ancient document that has to be understood first of all by what the author intended and by what the first recipients received in reading it so i've tipped my cards that's that's where i stand. i'm fine to be convinced otherwise but I think that sometimes we get off track when we start talking about the age of the earth. And I think also, in, in regards to this, and here, here's a statement from John Lennox, he says this, it is simply false to suggest, as some do, that the only alternative to young earth creationism is to accept the Darwinian model. In other words, there, there have been some of you, maybe, that were, we grew up in the church, and somehow you were, you were feared into thinking that if you didn't accept the young age earth and, and, and this creationism that was taught to you in six literal 24-hour days, that somehow you're going to be on a slippery slope and that therefore you don't hold high the word of God and you're, you're denying the faith somehow. And I, I found through studying somewhat what John Lennox addresses some of the fundamental concerns of young earth people, I found that, that I believe he's got a lot of good stuff to teach there. And John Walton, another author, has a different framework view, but, but I, I really have valued what he says. And I'll just share it in a nutshell. It's, it's got a terrible handle, so don't fall off the wagon with the handle, but the, the, the term of what he believes is called Cosmic Temple. Now, don't let that lead you into New Age thinking. Cosmic Temple is simply saying that, that John Walden and various others say that when we open up the book of Genesis, we're opening opening up what God designed to be an archetype of all Scripture, which is a temple. And, and, and he goes into detail about describing how the first days of the temple is the construction of the temple, the forming, days 1 to 3, the forming of the temple. And then in days 4 to 6, what happens? He brings the furniture and he fills the temple, and he fills it with all the creatures that glorify him, And then the ultimate in creatureliness is the humans, you and I, that are created in his image. And then what does he do on day seven? The king of glory comes into his temple and he rests on his throne. Day seven, God rested and he's now on his throne. There's no day eight, folks. There's no day eight. And God is on his throne now, ruling sovereignly over planet Earth and all the universe because that's what temples are all about. Temples are for deities to come into, to, to rest and to, to be worshipped and so on. And I, I want to study that view of the seven days of creation further because I haven't planted my flag there. It raises many questions for me. But at the same time, when I open up the Bible and read i see so much of what he says is true in fact it helps me understand why when the israelites built the tabernacle they put all kind and the temple later on they put they put gourds and plants and flowers and and fruit and vegetables all around every room in the temple why'd they do that because they saw in eden the garden of eden this temple this first temple where god came down Into his place, his sanctuary that he had built, and he inhabited it. And he took his throne room on it, and he was worshiped. And that's why when we see sin come into humanity and the world what is it that god moves toward in israel's history the the law the priesthood the sacrifices the buildings all the stuff all the paraphernalia what's it for it's so that god can re-enter his sanctuary have fellowship with his humans and be worshiped and we get into the new testament and what does jesus say to the pharisees he says destroy this temple and i will build it in three days and what does the scripture say by this he meant his body and then afterwards what does paul the apostle and others say he says you church you are the body of the of christ you are the temple of the living god and at the end of the age in revelation what do we see we see a temple imagery come back i believe there's lots to be said from john walton and other authors that see this cosmic temple view so enough said on that um But ultimately, I have two concerns about anything regarding personal opinion about Genesis and Revelation. Or Genesis, sorry. And that is, first of all, truth. A hermeneutical concern for integrity. I I think that most of, of all, I believe we must have freedom of conscience in the church. The freedom to learn, to grow, to change your opinion as the Holy Spirit teaches you, whether it's your interpretation of science or whether it's your interpretation of, of God's Word, you need freedom of conscience. And you must have integrity. You must pursue interpreting God's Word with integrity. If it means you're changing your mind, if it means you're flowing against the, the flow, if you're swimming against the current, that's okay. You must have a free, clean conscience before God. And the second thing I argue for is love a pastoral concern for unity? And that is the freedom of fellowship the freedom to question and discuss and hold to differing ideas in this church family without fear of rejection or judgment. You know, there doesn't have to be groupthink on every subject under heaven, folks. We can agree to disagree. And that is, these are the two concerns the truth concern and the love concern. These are the things that I most am concerned about in in regards to creation. Let's move on to things that we can reassert which are more fundamentally important, I know. What, first of all, what does the Bible not teach? From our study of Genesis 1 so far, what can we say, this I cannot believe? So I'll share a few isms with you. I'll share a few uh, heresies with you that I believe in my handling of Scripture, Genesis 1 automatically says, don't go there, Christian. Don't go there. First of all, atheism. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's obvious, I know. Should I have to say that? Atheism. God is, God is mentioned as His name is mentioned 32 times in chapter 1. <laughs> in the beginning, God you either take this book seriously and you follow God, that he is, or you are out of step with this book and the God who wrote it and gave it to us. Atheism is dispelled with Genesis 1. Polytheism is dispelled with Genesis 1. Many gods. When we talked a couple weeks ago about the fact that it should not rock our faith to know that there are other ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation or the flood. But guess what? All of them have in common and is not like Genesis at all. They are all polytheistic, many gods, all of them. They do not believe in one God as we do, as we believe God has brought us to understand through the Scriptures. And so the mythological accounts of creation that are passed on to different cultures have a very pale resemblance to the true creation account of god's word the third dispelling is materialism is dispelled from genesis 1 why do i say that because god created everything in latin ex nihilo out of nothing out of nothing god spoke everything that is in material world into existence matter then is not eternal matter is not eternal the philosophy that our world is living on when you leave this premise and go out into the world around you, the philosophy is materialism, that everything that can be touched and tasted and felt and that is three-dimensional, that's what really counts because after we're done in this world, that's it. Well, the Bible says no. The Bible says materialism is not true. God teaches us that matter is not eternal god teaches us that there is an invisible and immaterial part of every one of us our souls that live on forever and we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come another ism is pantheism is dispelled from genesis 1 god is god and god is distinct from all creation god is not mother earth god is not the wind and the water and the trees god created mother earth God created the wind and the water and the trees. And he did so so that we might have a world that would be beautiful and sustain our lives and would reflect his glory, as as Romans 1 teaches us. But God is far over all of his creation. Pantheism is not true. Naturalism, the idea that nothing exists beyond the natural, physical world, that everything can somehow be be explained one day by natural laws or forces that's not true because god is supernatural god will god will suspend natural laws as we have seen in history in the biblical times even in our day and age there are so many miracles so many things that we would say are beyond naturalism and finally i'll mention one more that might be new to some of you biocentrism biocentrism is the belief that the rights and the needs of humans are to be extended to all living things. In other words, biocentrism says that the life of a whale or a chimpanzee or a fish or something else is of equal value to a human life. And we categorically deny and and reject that, and we're going to see why based on the teaching of the Word of God that is in the image of God. We cannot accept that. And how is it that we are to to have dominion over this creation and all their life, but we are not. Humans are so, so much more precious to God than any other creature that he created. So those are some of the things that we know that Genesis does not teach. What about what does the Bible teach? What do we know that God's word does teach? Well... First of all, we can say that God is the only cause of the origin of life. Like I said earlier, science scientists have no theory except the Big Bang on the origin of life. And again, the question is, what caused the Big Bang? And the atheists come back and say, well, what caused your God? And as we began the series, we said just God always was. The Bible, you'll never find an answer in this book to why there is a God he is eternal and his very name that was given to Israel it means is Yahweh the tetragrammaton is called this 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 YHWH guess what it's it's I am who I am <laughs> I don't you I don't know you an explanation you know remember that Moses says hey if pharaoh asks who sent me what do I say what's your name god god says you tell them that I am sent you. I am who I am. You'll never find a reason for God in the Bible. You will either accept it by faith or you will not accept him by faith. And uh, I believe it takes a lot less faith to believe in God, a supernatural, wonderful, loving God, than some of the stuff science is throwing at us sometimes. God brought everything into existence. He brought order out of chaos I'm just going to say some things that I believe Genesis 1 affirms God brought light into darkness God brings life into being and God sustains life and it is only God who decides when life ends we seek a relationship with God because God is a relational God. It says in Genesis 1:26, Let us make man in our image. There is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having a holy huddle and discussing together the crowning act of creation in humanity. Incredible. We're a relational people because God's a relational God. And even when sin had marred the relationship with God, He's the one who, in His love for humanity, provided a way back to Himself through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. The the Hebrew word for create, bara, 33 times used in the Bible, just five in Genesis 1. But guess what? Always, that word is always and only used for God. No one else creates. There's other words used for what we do. Only God is creator. Only God. Seven times in Genesis 1, we read that what God saw was good. Verse 31, it says it was very good. See, God's a good God. We learn this from Genesis 1. The expression, after its kind, in creation days 1 to 6, after its kind is used 10 times. When God creates something, it's always after its kind. See, God, that's because God is a God of order and not of chaos. And so that's why I, I reject the idea of macroevolution because we don't see species. There's no real documented proof of any species going to be another species. Fish do not somehow all of a sudden become humans or birds or, or, or animals. And so there's this categorical species this order this after its kind we'll get to see that as well when we talk about humans being created in the image of god male and female he created them today we see a liquidity in gender stuff going on we see confusion in this world because they're they're not understanding what god's word says i believe we need to address that in in talking about the image of god because these foundations of Genesis are, are, are huge. They have huge implications for the foundations of our faith. Well, let's go on to just to conclude our time together with... I'm not going to read that one. Let's talk about Jesus. And um, I just want to share with you a few things from this, the, the final portions of Scripture. Uh, in... John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him. Jesus, that's just an introduction in John's Gospel. Notice that all these I'm sharing are chapter 1. Chapter 1 of the epistles are the gospel because they're foundational understanding. The next one I want to share from Colossians 1. It says that by Jesus, by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. So we got the by him and through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Like this is the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all of creation being announced by the apostle. And then the last one I want to share is from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and jesus is the one that upholds this universe by the word of his power wow jesus is the one he's got the whole world in his hands jesus is the one who upholds this universe by the word of his power You see, at the end of studying creation, you and I can argue about how old the earth is. We can disagree about all kinds of theories that science brings to us or interpretations of Scripture. We can do that. We can fellowship together around Jesus and do that. But we must, at the end of the day, acknowledge, oh, the supremacy of Jesus Christ has to be that that's where we land our feet, solid ground, no wishy-washy, theories about that no jesus christ reigns supreme and one day every one of us who know him and love him and every nation on earth every people group that has a representation of him they're going to be gathered around his throne and he's going to be given the glory that he deserves would you stand with me as we conclude our time together and let me just pray for us Do you want to come and let's sing After we, I'm sorry I kept you longer today. But let's let's thank God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Your word is good and true. And uh, Lord, I just pray you bless this to our minds and our thinking, Lord. That we might give to Jesus Christ, the ruling, reigning Lamb of God, all that you deserve, Lord, and that you might be pleased with your church. Help us as we question, as we work through things. Help us, O Lord, to, uh, to be humble in our approach. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In your name, amen. Lord, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we recognize together that even as we wrestle through all of our questions and as we read through all of your answers and we have all of those conversations, at the center of it all, we do all of that under the canopy of your goodness and grace that we can have in you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And Lord, may we be temples where you are forever exalted, where you can have fellowship with us, we can have fellowship with you, and your name be praised. Bless each one as we go from here, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving. Have a wonderful day.